Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. Our goal is simple. We want to challenge you to think differently about finance and business. Join us and start the journey today. All right, guys. So as usual, I'm here with uh, myself, Tim Bickmore, Dan Weiss, and Nathaniel Leach. Welcome, guys, which is fantastic. Um, Today, our title of our podcast is Price vs. Value. Fight! There we go. Um, but what I really want to do to start this podcast off is I want to start us off with a quote. I think the quote will really help us kind of guide us through this conversation and what we're talking about when we say price versus value. So this quote is attributed to Ben Graham, and he supposedly once said, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it is a weighing machine. Um, I think this quote really opens up a lot of can of worms, um, especially to people who aren't as in involved or as in-depth when it comes to the financial markets or the stock market in general. So that's where I wanted to start. And this one is really going to revolve around our great friend Nathaniel over here because this is what Nathaniel deals with on a day-to-day basis is the market. So I'm just going to let you kind of start about price versus value and where we want to go from there. Okay. So <laughs> this is a real chance for me to, to get it out there about how we how I think about things. And how we as a firm think about things when it comes to investment management. So I want to start off by uh, reading, uh, pointing out a parable that is taken from The Intelligent Investor, which was written by Benjamin Graham. Uh, so in this book, in Chapter 8 specifically, he speaks about the parable of Mr. Market. So the, the parable is this. Let's say you decide to buy a small share of a privately held business for $1,000. And let's say that you have a partner in this venture named Mr. Market. So Mr. Market, every day he tells you what he thinks that your interest is worth. And every day he extends an offer to you to buy out your interest in the privately held business. So on one day... Mr. Market may say, I think that your piece of the business is worth $2,000. But uh, on the next day, he may argue and he may say, you know what? I think that your interest is worth $500. And he, he would vacillate like that every day, depending on how he was feeling in general. But the point of this parable is to point out that Mr. Market is just that, markets. He, he vacillates depending upon how he's feeling in that day. It's the same thing with the people that comprise of the stock markets today. The prices that we see on a publicly traded stock exchange are just an extension of what people are willing to pay for that particular company, that share of the company. So it boils down to this. Basically, price fluctuations have only one significant meaning for the true investor. They provide him with an opportunity to buy wisely when prices fall sharply and to sell wisely when they advance a great deal. At other times, he will do better if he forgets about the stock market and pays attention to his dividend returns and to the operating results of the companies. Taken from another quote, he should always remember that market quotations are there for his convenience, either to be taken advantage of or to be ignored. He should never buy a stock because it has gone up or sell one 
because it has gone down. So around this parable and those quotes is how we operate today when it comes to what we focus on for investment management. This is what is our North Star, if you will, our guiding principle. We are aware of market fluctuations, but we're never going to let them dictate whether it makes sense or not to buy a company unless it blatantly makes sense to do so. So we thought that we would then take a step back after using that par- uh, mentioning that parable and say and explain what is a secondary market. A secondary market is, for example, any company that is listed on, say, any one of the exchanges worldwide. So a prominent one that we're all aware of is the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. NASDAQ used to be known for all tech companies where the dot-com bubble was in the early 2000s. I'm sure we're all familiar with that. So what happens is when a company wants to become publicly traded, they have what's called an IPO which is a public offering for retail investors, the John Doe's of the world, to buy a piece of that business on a publicly traded exchange. So what does it mean when you buy or sell a piece of a stock, a piece of a company on an exchange? Well, it's really a matter of supply and demand, price versus value. So it's a case of going on to, say, Yahoo Finance, and you look at the last price that, say, Coca-Cola was trading at, and let's say it was trading at $52 a share. That's what the last trade was quoted at, and that's what the market believes that Coca-Cola is worth at that point in time. But as we all know, these prices vacillate throughout the day, throughout the year. Statistically speaking, Coca-Cola's price can vacillate anywhere from 50 to percent in one direction or or both directions within a a period of a year. Does that mean that Coca-Cola's value, though, has actually vacillated as much? If we look at what Coca-Cola comprises of, it's a huge distribution network for them to get their Coca-Cola syrup out to their end consumer. Is it really conceivable for Coca-Cola's price, if we were to use the $50 per share uh, valuation today, is it conceivable to believe that Coca-Cola's value has actually vacillated negative 50% to a, a price point of, say, $25 per share within the space of year based on the amount of assets that it has? Does that make sense? Probably not. Well, it doesn't make sense to me. But I mean, like from a from a general standpoint, if you're looking at it from let's say, because obviously we're sitting here talking to you, you live this day to day, Dan and I live this day to day, everyone in this office lives it day to day. But to somebody on the outside, right, who isn't involved in the financial markets, it's the the price is the only indicator of what I think it's worth. Mm. And then I'm sure I'm I'm trusting, I guess, from an, again a general public, if you have done statistics before, right, you the the number. The larger the number gets, the more statistically significant it can become. So if the market is made up with a million people and a million people think that that's Coca-Cola is worth $50, then I'm going based off that that assumption, right? And, I'm, and I could use statistics as a rule of thumb of saying, well, I know there's a million participants within this market. 
and they're saying trading back and forth that it's worth X amount of dollars. Not saying there's a million trades going on at, at in a day, but that's how from a general standpoint, it does make sense if I look at it from that standpoint, but if I then know how the market works and what you're saying, then no, I don't agree necessarily that Coca-Cola's actual value would shift that fast and that much. You bring up an excellent point, Tim, about that it, it, it isn't your job and it isn't most people's job to dig into what Coca-Cola is has an estimate of worth, what, mm-hmm. what their estimate of worth is. They, that's why there is the publicly traded mar- markets because it gives them a, an idea of what the rest of the market's participants are placing a value of it on. So a way to value Coke is to look at its cash flows. And that's, that's how most investors look at it. So to have a good understanding of what their cash flows are today and where you think those cash flows are going to be in the future is how you value a company like that. So that's where um, we, we really hit back on the price versus value question, is that while the market is saying that Coca-Cola is, is worth $50 a share, let's say, I might come up with a calculation or, or valuation, I should say, that it's worth $100 a share. It's not what I'm saying, but as an example. So it's the question of price versus value that most people don't understand because they don't have a concept of what that company's value is comprised of. And I think it gets even harder too when from the value part of the equation or the co- or argument is that if you really start going into investment management or investment research, I hear a lot of, well, you're a value guy. You're a growth guy. You're a core guy. You're an international guy. Yeah, which, which, but that's what's hard is what then that they're valuing things differently than maybe you are, right? So typically, from what I've been told, growth people are looking at higher growing companies. They're going to put more emphasis on saying that they think they can achieve the growth rates that that are continuing to go. So these high flyers, Apple, Amazon, things that have high growth rates tied to them. Or if you're looking at a value guy and someone who's more the cigarette butt, Ben Graham style, you know, I want cheap, cheap companies. So they're priced to earnings. That's how they're valuing them. Mm-hmm. So I think from a, from a general standpoint, how do I know who's right and who's wrong? Like what, what is, uh, how, what does that mean? What does value mean when everyone's looking at it from a different lens or it seems to be looking at it from a different lens? So it, it's, it's not a different lens. It's a different application of the same principles. So anybody, so you take any moniker that you can come up with, value, growth, core, everything that you just listed off. Yeah. And it's all a matter of application of, the sim, of similar principles. So the similar principles are simply trying to find a security that is trading at a price that is less than its value. So using value and growth, for example. As you say, value looks at cheap um, based on PE or price to book. Growth looks for high, supposedly high growth companies in terms of revenue or earnings. And it's just it's a similar application of they're, they're just looking at companies that may have different characteristics. Of They may have a high growth here, low growth here, but the valuation thereof, it's still the same it's still the same principles being applied. Uh, it's just being applied in a different 
So I look at all sorts of companies and we have invested in companies where I've just been simply valuing them off of price to tangible book value to be more conservative and because it's in the financial industries. Or I've looked at companies that have had high growth rates and I've deemed that, okay, if it continues to grow at X percentage and it's maybe a high percentage, is it trading at a price that is less than what that value per those those interest rate, excuse me, those growth rates discounted back to the present are worth? So if the price is severely less than what I think the estimated value is, then it might be pertinent to buy. Same thing applies to if I'm buying something as a price to tangible book value metric. If there's a significant margin of safety, significant margin of a buffer, then it might be pertinent to buy as well. So we're talking about the value in the growth company, but it's the same concept. And in, and so in both concepts as well, there's a miscommunication between the price that the market is presenting hmm. on the ticker tape and then the price that you've applied to it depending on how you're valuing said company. Exactly. It's a matter of subjectivity and perception. It's, it's exactly what this, this parable Ben Graham wrote about, Mr. Market and, and, and the buyer, excuse me, and the owner, is talking about, is that Mr. Market is irrational and always will be. And the same concept goes to the market in general, that the market will always be irrational to a certain degree. It has its rational moments. It also has its irrational moments. Because what is the market made of? People. people. And, and one could even make the argument that uh, it's also made up of algorithms and, and robo-advisors robo and such. Well, who makes the algorithms? People. Uh, a great, I think I've, I've mentioned this in a past podcast, but I think I, think I mentioned long-term capital management back in the 90s. And that was a great example of a investment firm that they used. What killed them was leverage, but they made trades based upon algorithms. And algorithms have, and they, they base these algorithms on uh, past performance of what they were investing in. Just because it's happened in the past doesn't mean that's what's going to happen in the future. So. That's an example of where they had a mechanical means, this algorithm, um, that was based upon past performance. So it's human. It's prone, it's prone to human error. So, um, yeah. Which is interesting, too. And I think that when I went through school and being an economics person, going through the economics degree at Lawrence University, I, the day, the first day I walked in, I mean, the teacher literally set us down our micro class and said, you know, there's a couple things about economics. One, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And two, that we have to make an assumption that everyone's rational. <laughs> and I struggled with that from the beginning because at, at the end of the day, I know that I'm not rational. I'm not always making rational decisions. I think there's irrationality. And that means like you have always said, if I make up the market a million Tims, that means that the market's not going to be rational either even if you do have, statistically speaking, enough data points to prove that it's statistically significant, you still can have outliers and differences. And I would say, too, some of the points that are interesting about the markets is, like Nathaniel, you were saying, it's buying and trading between you and I. 
So what's always interesting is people try to replicate sometimes other people's portfolios. So Warren Buffett is a very good one that people try to pick on and say, oh, I will match him. He's holding Wells Fargo, so I should hold Wells Fargo. Hmm. Or he's holding Apple now, so I should hold Apple. But you don't know why he's holding that. You don't know what his tax basis is. You don't know how long he's been holding it. You don't know the reasons for why he's still holding it or continues to hold it. And it may not be a good decision for you. And then he may sell it at a price that you think is a good price to buy it at. But he may sell it because he may find a better idea. You know, the reasoning for buying and selling is sometimes misrepresented where you could find yourself in an index fund and then you get out of the index fund and that index has to go and sell out of all of the holdings it holds. But the reasoning for selling might be because you died. Maybe your state's being liquidated. Maybe it's something else, right? There's a lot of other factors that are built into buying and trading that aren't just, I'm buying it because I know it's a good price, mm -hmm. or I'm selling it because I think it's overvalued. Then maybe I want to buy a new boat and just switch my assets. So how, how do you build that into, a, into consideration when you're thinking that everything is just, they're doing it only because it makes sense from a price-to-value perspective? Mm -hmm. Buffett could be selling it because it's too small for him to own at this point. <laughs> True. There's other limitations then, which is going deeper, institutional bias as well. You know, Institutions sometimes will just blow out of things because they want to be out of it now, not necessarily because of price to value, but everybody wants to, to label it as if it's that. Mm. But even in our experiences as firm is people will sell stuff because they just want the money sure. to use it for other things. Yep. Your economics professor, though, is correct. The, the, first, the first comment you made about Tinstoffel, well, they are correct about that. There is no such, such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, they're right about that. There's that is true. Something has to pay for something, <laughs> which is always interesting. And I think going back to the what is, and I'm gonna kick it back to you here in a second. Nathaniel, the one experience that I've seen when you're talking about price to value is we had, we have run into situations where there's private REITs, and the reason why I bring this up is because I've kind of been tracking it ever since we helped a client um, liquidate out of a private REIT, and it's interesting because a private REIT isn't isn't publicly traded. So they'll just post through their filings what they feel the price of the REIT is. But that doesn't mean that's the price that you can get out of the REIT because there's restrictions to getting out of it. It's very restrictive. But there's also secondary markets for these privately traded REITs to be able to get out of them. And it's interesting to watch as these emails come through about weekly or monthly of one of the REITs that I look at. And the price has slightly fallen from what, they're, what they say it's worth. But then if you look at what it's trading for and what you can get out, it's significantly less, mm. significantly less, which is fascinating. It's only gone down, right? It's continuing to go down mm. from, from that perspective, but you wouldn't necessarily see that because it's not plastered on CNN or CNBC or wherever it is. But there's a, there's a, obviously a difference between what the fund thinks it's worth mm -hmm. and then what people are worth, what, it, what they think it's worth to actually trade in and out of. Is that there's a you know we have a disconnect, which is fascinating. Exactly, and that's how we do. That's our bread and butter. In that we are looking for those disconnects, those severe disconnects between what the market says something is worth versus what we think it's worth, based upon the fundamentals that drive the company. So. I was going back and forth and trying to think about what would be a, an example that we can relate to our to people to better understand this. So I, I was thinking that a house would be a good example in that you buy your, let's say you buy a house for $200,000 and 
five years ago. And you've lived in it for five years, and the market, the houses around you have appreciated by 50%. So going by that logic, you think that your house is worth uh, $300,000 now. $200,000 plus 50% equals $300,000. So then you decide to list your home for that $300,000. And that's what you think it's worth. But then when you list it, and it sits on the market for 90 days, and you're not hearing anything from your realtor, and then you finally get an offer, and they're offering you 250. It's not a matter of, there's several different pieces at play here. There, you, you use the relative basis of the houses surrounding you to place a valuation upon the home. You are, by definition, irrational because you are human. And then somebody comes along and offers you 50000 less than what your listing price is. And most people may say, oh, no, I'm not going to take that offer. That's ridiculous. These other houses around me are trading at 300000 or more. I'd never take that offer. But the macro variables at play, the micro variables, the micro being like the buyer who's offering, potential buyer who's offering you a deal of 250 um, other potential buyers that are coming down the pipe, the variables subject to those individuals and to the general market at large are going to be dictating what the price is, not what you estimate your home value to be. So this is the example. It's, it's the same thing with any publicly traded security. It is what the seller deems that their shares are worth versus what you, the buyer, or they, the buyer, thinks that your shares are worth. It's purely subjective. So a great example of this is the uh, WeWork debacle. So in January of 2019, when they had an equity raise with um, SoftBank buying into them, they had a valuation of $47 billion. Then in the summertime, going into August and September of 19, they estimated that they, could, that they were going to go IPO and become publicly traded. But it turns out that they thought that they probably couldn't IPO for $47 billion, but more of a range of 20 to $30 billion. And then, after this whole thing played out, as I think most of us are aware, in November of 19, when they had to raise more capital to cover the debt that was coming due, the new valuation was $5 billion. So in the space of a year, their valuation dropped more than, almost more than 90%. It's crazy. That's, that's craziness. It's, it's crazy to the point of how the hell did it get up to a valuation of $47 billion and then fall back down to $5 billion? Where's the rationality in that? Where is the rationality in, not that it fell as much, but the fact that it was so high to begin with? In what rational investor's mind was WeWork worth $47 billion based on the fact that it was bleeding cash like crazy, that its whole business model was to go into long-term leases and then sublet into short-term leases and then to project themselves as a tech company? It's completely irrational. And yet, venture capitalists and private investors, huge institutional investors, were placing these huge valuations on this kind of a company. So it just speaks to how irrational Mr. Market will get. And, and, and at any point in time, there is irrationality. You can find irrational 
You can, po you can find pockets of irrationality at any point in time, anywhere in the world. Yeah. You just have to find it. Which is interesting. In the next part of price versus value, fight, we are going to discuss how a different narrative can shape the price of the same company so differently, and thus the importance of understanding the fundamentals of the company rather than the stories that you've been told. Dan asks a very interesting question. With more and more non-professional do-it-yourselfers entering the market, will that enlarge the discount between price and value? Now remember, we recorded this podcast before COVID-19 hit us, and at the time, we were in one of the longest bull markets. It's incredible to hear Nathaniel's answer because when he predicted what people will do when the market turns down 25%, he was dead on. As Dan quoted, price is what you pay and value is what you get. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker-dealer or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.